Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch was the great leader of German Jewry in the 19th century, and his remarkable leadership and heroism during a turbulent time is both inspiring and relevant for us today. In this class, we look at the life and times of Rabbi Hirsch, his biography, his accomplishments, his struggles, his values, and his ideals. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. Okay, thank you all for coming. Good morning, everyone. Our topic for this morning is the life and times of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch was really, in a certain sense, in my opinion, he's the first leading figure of the modern era of Judaism in many regards. He was a rabbi in Germany in the mid-19th century. We're going to talk in a few moments about his biography, what he did, where he was born, what he accomplished. We'll then talk about his legacy, what he left over, and what we today, so far away in North America, is this just some, as I said, a dead German rabbi from 150 years ago? Or, in my opinion, he's very, very much alive in a very real way. Um, he's one of those figures I always find it interesting historically. I always like to consider what happens if you delete a certain person from history? What happens to the world today? What does it look like? It's a very interesting way of valuing someone's historical impact. If you delete Rabbi Hirsch from history, Judaism looks vast, in my opinion, looks vastly different today which shows that he was a tremendously impactful figure in, in Jewish history, and his legacy lives on uh, very much at Hayom until today. But I want to begin with a background, just to sort of set the stage of the context and the times, and what Rabbi Hirsch, um, what his goal was, what was his agenda. In a certain sense, understanding the context and what German Jewry looked like mid-19th century, that's half the story. Rabbi, Rabbi Hirsch is the solution to what was really a tremendous problem of, uh, of German-Jewish life. If we back ourselves up all the way back, we, we've spoken many times of how, if you, there's a verse, I believe it's in Sophania, that talks about the dispersed Jews. This is already the first temple era. The Jews who are dispersed around the face of the earth. And it talks about the Jews that are dispersed all the way in Ashkenaz. And always the question is, is what is this place Ashkenaz? Where is it? And there are different opinions. Some opinions say that it's actually a Canaanite place. But the majority, my sense is, the majority of the Rishonim explain that Ashkenaz refers to, I guess what we would call, Western Germany, like southern Germany, northern France, what we call the Rhine, the Rhine Valley. And colloquially, whether or not that's what the verse in Sophania is actually referring to, colloquially, the term Ashkenaz has always referred to German Jewry in general. More specific, it was the Rhine Valley, the Jewish population in the Rhine Valley. For those who joined us on Tisha B'Av uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the Jews of the, of the, the Rhine Valley and Worms, and, and other, other cities, they were, they were terrible massacres in the year 1096 of the First Crusades. Um, the prayer of Harachamim, which we recite Saturday morning, we'll get back to that hopefully later in our class, the 
prayer of Arachamim, which is a prayer where we ask God to take vengeance against our tormentors and those who have persecuted us, was actually composed, according to Eitz Yosef, as a response to the, to the atrocities and massacres of the year 1096 in Ashkenaz. After that, about 100, within the next 100 years or so, the Jews basically got kicked out of what would be technically called Ashkenaz and the Rhineland, and they would move more to Central Europe and Germany. When we think of... Uh, Germany, when we think of Europe, when we think of any country in history, it's always, particularly when you talk about Germany, it's always important to understand countries didn't exist. We've talked about this when we talk about Spain and other, and, and other historical classes. We think of countries today, we think of vast countries, the United States of America, it's a huge, from sea to shining sea. In medieval times, and really up until the year 1871, functionally, specifically in Germany, but this is true in all of Europe, countries didn't exist. Think about it. There's no communication. There's no transportation. What does it mean if you're the king of France? Do you really have any say? Are you really directly or even indirectly involved in the life of someone, of the, in life of someone who lives 200 miles from you? How exactly are you getting them to listen and obey your command? It was very difficult. So although, yes, there were kings and there were countries, they tended to not have all that much power. Power used to be on a much more local level, on the local county, the city-state. This was the most true in Germany, where for you know, a thousand years, give or take, if you remember, I always talk about, if you remember your AP European history, thank you, Mrs. Wolf. I did well on that one. He would always teach us. To, remember the Holy Roman Empire? It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. Right? But the Holy Roman Empire, what was that? It was a, a vast, loose association of, you know, probably 40 different countries. The Habsburg Dynasty, maybe 40 little teeny countries in the Germanic lands, Germany, Prussia, Austria, Hungarian Empire. These were a lot of teeny little countries. And each one had their little duke or, you know, viceroy or whomever. And they were independent. These were very, very loose associations. In the 1800s, in the 1800s, particularly in Germany, there were, se there were several waves of consolidation where... Germany, all these little countries, you first have, first you had the Napoleonic Wars, and Napoleon tries to conquest the world, and you know, a lot of those, a lot of those countries actually came under Napoleon's influence. Then in 1805, you have the Confederate, the German Confederation, which was kind of a loose association. These, throughout the 1800s, these Germanic lands began forming associations while still clinging on to their independence. They would officially become Germany, the Second Reich under, or First Reich under, uh, the, no, the Third Reich would be Hitler. And the second would be on, the first would be Bismarck when he when he consolidates the consolidation of Germany. Bismarck really is the first, the first chancellor. He goes ahead and he consolidates Germany into one country. As all of this is happening, what's happening to the Jews? What's happening to the Jews? The Jews. They've been kicked out of the Rhineland, but there's a flourishing, very large Jewish community throughout all these Germanic countries and these Germanic lands. What's happening to the Jews? The Jews in Europe weren't citizens of the countries that they belonged to. 
They were outcasts. They didn't have any rights. Technically speaking, there was one exception. Ironically, it was Poland. Poland, the Jews actually technically were emancipated, I think in the year like 1290 something or other, but that was in paper alone. The Jews were totally second class, totally relegated and not part of society. As the 1800s, or really the late 1700s, first with Napoleon, one of the things that Napoleon actually did was he emancipated the Jews under his dominion, and Jews gained citizenship. After Napoleon his, and Waterloo, that flavor that Jews felt of emancipation, of being now citizens, well, that you know, is, is meaningful and powerful. And throughout the 1800s, in all these little Germanic lands, Slowly but surely, Jews would be emancipated, and they'd get their freedom, and they'd be citizens, and be allowed to, you know, go to school. They'd be allowed to work. They'd allow, be allowed to own land. The problem was, is Jews felt or hoped that after each wave of emancipation, now we're free. Now we can go, you know, watch Monday night football in Germany, and every now and then it'll be great. But it never really happened. Because every time they took one step forward, they would take two steps back. Probably most famously at the Hep Hep riots of 1819 in Germany and Hamburg and Frankfurt, where yes, the Jews were emancipated in 1800 whatever, but their non-Jewish next door neighbor who's enlightened and smart and, you know, right, they hated the Jews. So whenever the Jews took one step forward with their emancipation, they were often reminded a few years or a decade later that they weren't wanted. That although they may legally be first-class citizens, they still are socially, racially, second-class citizens. One in, uh, I have a, a quote over here from Amos Elone in his, in his book, The Pity of It All, A History of the Jews in Germany, 1743 to 1933, talking about those hep-hep riots. In some places, attempts were made to return Jews to their old medieval status. The free city of, Fa of Frankfurt reinstated parts of the medieval statute that restricted the rights of Jews. As of 1816, only 12 Jewish couples were allowed to marry each year. One of the things, one of the restrictions, particularly in Germany and again in Russia also, Jews were not allowed to get married. You had to get authority from the government. They would say, oh, sorry, only 16 of you can get married. The 400,000 golden the community had to pay was a tax. The city government, in which it reverted to Prussian control, Jews lost citizen citizen citizenship rights, easy for you to say. They've been granted under the French and were no longer allowed to practice certain professions. So you have these Jews, they're getting emancipated, but then getting reminded that, no, you're not, you're still a Jew. And that created tremendous tension within the Jewish community. How can we go ahead? They tasted freedom. They tasted emancipation. The ability to get ahead in life. The ability to be able to work, to be able to take care of themselves financially. But they weren't accepted. They were rejected. How could we go ahead and be able to really be emancipated and be loved and considered as equals by my non-Jewish next door neighbor? And this was a tremendous tension. And beginning in really in the late 1700s, we have the beginning of what would be called the reform movement of German Jewry. Not to be confused with the reform movement of American Jewry, which would basically be, always be about one generation behind. It's what I would call its second cousin, the German reform movement. And we'll talk about some of the contrasts in just a moment. But the German reform movement 
begins in er, well, it begins er, in, earlier in the in like let's say the late 1700s. Really, what's, who's considered the great granddaddy of German reform, but he wasn't quite. Was a fellow named Mo, Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn. He wrote what he did was he. he it wasn't clear early on. People thought, I mean, you had one thing, an orthodox, traditional, Torah-observant life. Mendelssohn wrote a commentary called the Beor, which was a commentary on the, on the five books of the Torah. And it was written in a very high German, which was unusual. Typically, any type of Torah or Jewish literature was written in Hebrew, at, you know, or in some cases maybe in Yiddish or the German dialect of Yiddish, which was you know, slightly, slightly, slightly different than classic Yiddish. Mendelssohn writes a beautiful German, which I guess, like, what's the problem? It was strongly criticized by a lot of the Orthodox rabbis, which was strange. Like, what's the problem with that? The challenge was what a lot of the early rabbis saw and sensed early on was you know, you want to write a, a commentary in German because now it's, maybe it's accessible to the people who don't necessarily, the Jews who weren't so familiar with Hebrew, fine. But the fact that it was written in such a high German that you had to really pull out a dictionary off the shelf to like, be able to translate some of the words, a lot of the rabbis detected that there was an agenda going on over here. This wasn't just an attempt to make Torah accessible to the masses, but this was somehow represented a certain shift a reform of Judaism. And interestingly, we have even tshuvas, we have responsa from some of the classic uh, rabbis of the, of the times who would quote, you know, who would talk about Moses Mendelssohn with, they wouldn't lambast him necessarily, but with a little bit of a, at an arm's length of like, what was his agenda and what was his goal? It would really be the next wave of scholars who would really begin to reform Judaism. Beginning in the early 1800s, you had people like, where are my notes? We had people like Israel Jacobson and the like. And they started a very loose, unorganized movement. Shouldn't be seen until the year, let's say, 1840 in Germany. You don't have a real organized movement and, and paying membership or coalitions. It wasn't like that. Rather, what you had is you had free thinkers, people like an Isaac Jacobson, in a couple of temples, a couple of the synagogues around Germany, places like, most notably, the first two temples was uh, the Sison Temple and the, ha- and, the, and the Hamburg Temple, where they began making changes specifically in the Jewish liturgy, in the davening. That was the first thing that happened. They didn't make any theological changes necessarily at the, you know, at the first steps. They didn't go ahead and say, you know, major changes in the halacha and the Jewish ritual laws. It, was, it started off as, as liturgic changes in the synagogue. For example, one of the things that they introduced, and maybe before we talk about some of the introductions, some of them you'll see are, well, that, those are either, if not crossing the line of being actually against Jewish law, against the halacha, some of them are right up against the margins, but many of the introductions actually seem, though, that's fine. What's the problem with that? That actually seems like a great idea. So let's start with that. For example, one of the things that they introduced was the sermon, much to all of your consternation. <laughs> if you think about it, little secret, where does it say that in the Saturday morning davening, there sh- thou shalt have a rabbi drone on and on on a sermon? It's not anywhere. It's nowhere in the halacha. 
And as a matter of fact, that wasn't ever the practice. Traditionally, the rabbi spoke, the rabbi's job was to paskin, was to rule on whether or not the, your chicken's liver was kosher or not kosher, and you can eat it. That's what rabbis, uh, certainly in Eastern Europe, that's what they did. That, they dealt with a lot of ritual law. And they did a little bit of, I guess, what we call spiritual guidance, yes, but that didn't happen from the pulpit. The rabbi traditionally spoke from the pulpit twice a year. Twice a year. The Shabbos before Passover, that's called Shabbos Hagadol. And the Shabbos before, anyone know? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. That's right, Shabbos Shuva. He would give the big Shabbos Shuvah drasha. And even then, certainly the Shabbos Hagadol drasha, it was never inspiration and taught, you know, like Rabbi Matt telling a story about Hawaiian culture for those who joined us yesterday. The rabbi was usually a technical discourse on the laws of Passover. The Germans in the early 1800s, a lot of these folks, they decided, we're going to introduce a sermon, which isn't against halacha. As a matter of fact, you look in any synagogue today, in the most orthodox of synagogues, everyone has a sermon, Nicola included. <laughs> They're good, come on, right? <laughs> but it's not really a part of Jew, I mean, it's a very, very modern innovation. The sermon, vernacular play, prayer, they offered, they substituted a lot of the prayer for German. It's a little bit more questionable. It's probably a little bit more up against the margins of halacha. Can, you pl- can one pray in English today using the art scroll sitter? So if you come to the explanatory service at 9.45 Saturday mornings and if none of you come, you should all feel ashamed of yourself and guilty for not, no, okay, right? What do we do? What, do? what do we happen when we're up to the Shemona Esrei? Everyone, please rise. Turn to page 418. We're going to sing the introduction to the Shemona Esrei together. And when we get to the top of page 420 and 421, we'll take a few minutes to recite the Shemona Esrei to ourselves. Please recite it in whatever language you're comfortable. So I announce every Shabbos. Technically, it's not a problem. You are, according to strict technical halacha, you're allowed to pray in whatever language you want. And we announce it every Shabbos. Feel free to pray in English. It's on the odd pages. Hebrews and the even. But this was not something that was done because most Jews were still comfortable in Hebrew. This was a new phenomenon that Jews were not so comfortable with Hebrew. They were more comfortable in their vernacular German. And they instituted German prayer, which was considered an innovation. Again, it's up against the margin. Is there anything wrong with that? Strictly speaking, no. Is it something new? Yes. Interestingly, we spoke about this on Tisha B'Av. One of the first real liturgic changes that was made is they did away with that prayer that we talked about earlier, the Av Harachamim prayer, that prayer that talks about taking vengeance against our tormentors. Many of the reformers felt like, this is barbaric. Calling for revenge. Turn the other cheek. We're loving. We embrace all. We're not hostile to our German. Our German next-door neighbors are such nice people. What would they possibly do wrong to us? Say a prayer about vengeance, right? It's, it's almost tragic. And it's like we laugh now, right? Like there's, it's a, there's a tragic irony. I pointed out on Tisha B'Av. It dawned on me, you know, uh, you know right before Tisha B'Av. It's fascinating. Just fast forward. It was the first land that Hitler invaded. The first place, his first act of territorial aggression was into the Rhineland. The very prayer of Avarachamim that the German Jews got rid of, that prayer was instituted a thousand years earlier you know, to avenge the Germans who had brutalized the Jewish communities of the Rhineland. 
Unreal. I mean, if that wasn't put there by God, I'm curious, you know, woo, that's unreal. They got rid with certain elements of decorum in the synagogue. If you've ever been, we've got to take this group on a field trip to a shtibel. Anyone ever been to a, like a real good old-fashioned shtibel in Borough Park? I mean, it's a cultural, it's, they're the coolest things in the world. So if you go to the real old shtibels, what happens before the Torah reading? Has anyone ever seen this? You probably just be shocking. Ever see what happens at, in, in a real good old-fashioned shtibel before they read from the Torah? They sell the aliyahs. You ever see like, like the auction of like Nevada? Look at That's what happens. This is an ancient custom. It actually goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. They would auction off the Elias. Why did they do that? It was a way of raising funds for the shul, for the local synagogue. And it was considered a tremendous honor. You got called up to the Torah. You'd make a donation. So who do you choose? I like you better than Richard. I don't like you so much. They had a better way. Whoever wants to pay more and donate more to the synagogue. So we're thinking about reintroducing that back here at the Cola. No. It's a fundraiser. Every Shabbos. I've been to synagogues. They do that not just every Saturday. They'll do it on Mondays and Thursdays. They don't pay. You're making a pledge. It's a pledge. Yeah. They pledge. For sure. For sure. So, most, so we here do almost every synagogue. Not all, but almost every synagogue will do that on Simchat Torah. We do that. Where there you have it's considered a tremendous zuchos, a tremendous merit to get certain read, you to read from the Torah, chasm gracious, chasm Torah, certain honors, and it can go. It's a human. I mean, I'll be honest, it's a big fundraiser for the Kowell. But aside from that, my dad, of blessed memory, it was his big, one of his big charitable contributions. Every year he would bid on chasm gracious. He would bid, you know, thousands of dollars every year. It's considered a tremendous merit. He would do that almost every year. One year he bought it and gave it to me. Wasn't that sweet? He did. But they did away with it. It's not befitting of a synagogue. To have a, you know, we're not selling cattle over here. And they got away with it. Anything wrong with that? Probably nothing wrong. Or getting away. I mean, most trolls nowadays, they don't, they don't sell. They don't auction off. They don't auction off the aliyahs. They added a few things. What did they add? Choirs. They added choral singing. Is that problematic in halacha? Maybe yes, maybe no. Other things that they did, they added an organ. Is that a problem in halacha? Yes, that is a problem. They had the rabbis dress in priestly garbs. By priestly garbs, I don't mean like the kohanim. I mean like the Protestant priests. Literally, they would measure and they would have the priests' garments. They would wear those kinds of things. And the other thing they did was they got rid of the mechitza, mixed seating. Why did they do all of this? Where was this coming from? The answer was very clear. The early reformers wanted to make, this was, it was very open, they wanted to make the synagogue look a lot more Christian. Their thinking and hope would be that if only our Christian next door neighbor, they would come in, the non-Jews used to come into the synagogue all the time and look at it like, what is this thing? But if we could make it more decorous, look a little bit more like a church, now they'll accept us, and now we'll be emancipated. How tragic was their hope? Beginning in the 1840s, the, the German reform took on actually a more of a, an organized, um, became an organized movement. There were great rabbinic um, meetings that took place, three or four of them that took place in the 1840s in a couple of different locations in, in Hamburg, where they you know, went ahead and they, uh, 
they actually started making theological changes. They did away with a lot of the halacha. They did away with this. They did away with that. They got rid of this thing. They got rid of that thing. Why were they getting rid of things? Because, again, they wanted to be accepted by the Christians. And the, the reform movement of Germany, and this was something that a lot of the participants at those German rabbinic conferences, even the reformers, they got a little frustrated. They got frustrated. It was always a destruction. It was never an affirmation of what we do do. It was always, we're going to get rid of this, get rid of that. This is no longer a necessary component of Jewish life. But what do you stand for? And that was one of the early criticisms to the point, I believe it was Geiger, Abraham Geiger, who we're going to see in a moment, is a very significant, he's really the, one of the main founders of the reform movement, of the German reform movement in the 1840s. So I believe it was Geiger who would always say in response, now these guys, again, they're coming from an orthodox background. They were well-versed in the Talmud. And he would respond back, very, very brilliant, um, incorrect in my opinion, but brilliant. He would say, so ser almenas livnos binyan who remarkable insight in the laws of Shabbat. One of the 39 prohibited activities is destruction. You're not allowed to break things on, on Shabbos. However, if you're breaking things purely for a destructive purpose, that's permitted. Because all of the, all of the acts of the 39 prohibited acts have to be constructive. So how do you have destruction that's prohibited? And the answer is, so sir almanas livnos. If you're breaking something so that you can rebuild it. We need to do construction, renovations in the building next door. Please, God, speedily in our days. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so we're going to need to take down the drywall. Is that a destructive act? Yes, but it's really constructive if you think about it. We need to get rid of that wall so we can build a nicer one. So that's what he used to say. Yes, we're just destroying Judaism, but so we can rebuild it and then will be accepted by our German compatriots. You mind a question now? Not a problem. We'll take questions. Um, I, I thought I'd read or heard that part of the reason that reform started in Germany was because so many Jews were leaving orthodoxy to go to nothing. So, no, but thank you for asking that, Jonathan. That's the difference. That is the primary difference between German, well, again, I, this is my opinion, the difference between German, or, German reform and American reform. German reform's main motives was so that Jews would be accepted and emancipated and be able to get jobs and be loved by their next-door neighbors. It wasn't so much because they were leaving to just go into nothingness. You couldn't leave to go into nothingness. And this is another very important point. You had to belong in Germany. You had to belong to a, to a synagogue by law. And this is going to be a very important point. Let's talk about this right now. The synagogues were actually... The rabbis, the, the synagogue was called the, the kihila, the congregation. When we think of a kihila, the kolel, you know, we don't control your lives yet. <laughs> but in Germany, you had to belong. You couldn't be an atheist. You had to belong to a religious group. You had to belong to your church. If you were Jewish, you had to belong to your synagogue. And the synagogue or the kihila, the community, actually had legal right. They would tax you. Who paid for the for you know, the shoal, they taxed you. You had to pay. Taken off your paycheck kind of thing. And it would pay for the synagogue and it would also pay for the rabbi and the communal infrastructure. You had to belong to a synagogue. And what ended up happening, and it would sweep across Germany very quickly, is the reform really swept through Germany very quickly. And the synagogues 
very quickly sweat changed from being orthodox to reform. This is in contradistinction to American reform. In America, this is lying in the free home of the brave. Separation of church and state. There ain't no institutionalized religion. First Amendment rights. Establishment clause. In the United States, the reform movement, although many of its leaders were rabbis who couldn't find jobs in Germany, that's really what it was, and many of them were very, very talented, but they were always, they were, you know, they were imports from Germany. It wouldn't be until the late 1800s, and Isaac Mayer Wise, and he would start HUC up in Cincinnati. I heard they're selling the building. Is that right? But no, no, but, eight, but, but the Plum Street Synagogue is, I heard someone said it's for sale. It's unbelievable. That's Isaac Mayer Wise's synagogue. I was ordained at HUC. Someone, t- I kinda, someone told me that like three weeks ago that the Plum Street Synagogue is, is for sale. I can't believe that's true. But HUC's program does, it like only exists online or something? Well, the rabbinic program, but they still have their other. The cantorial things and, and stuff like that. Unbelievable. But that's not till the late 1800s. I was Cincinnati, and that does the HUC is till, till, you know, it's first graduating class and the Trefa Banquet, for those who recall your American Jewish history. That's not till 18, what is it, 81. Earlier on, the reform movement in America, what was happening there? Those were Jews. They didn't need to be accepted by anyone. They weren't looking to be accepted by their next door neighbor. These were Jews who realistically couldn't really practice their Judaism because American life, you know, keeping kosher, not observing Shabbat, was impossible in 1820, it was impossible in 1920. So the reform movement in America was more of a watered-down form of Judaism, so people could go, and I'm a part, I'm, I'm still connected, I'm still Jewish. It was a much more positive movement. There's much less, uh, it, it, whereas German reform, if you have to, I mean, this is a, Gross oversimplification. Whereas German reform was like a negative in the sense that it was always about we want to break from the past and destroy it. American reform, although its leaders, many of them felt the same way, the leader, it was a much more bottom-up movement. Or it was a lot of people who just weren't interested or weren't able to keep the halacha, but were still interested and weren't comfortable going to the church next door. I think Larry had a question. Was that? Oh, uh... To Jonathan's point, and both the pity of it all, they also mentioned in there that about 50% of the Jews from about 1750 to 1850 converted to Christianity. Okay, so, and, and let's talk about, let's fast forward to a little bit. By the early 1900s, by the early 19, exactly, Moses Mendelssohn's grandchildren were all Christian. But by the early 1900s, reform, the reform that had swept Germany was, it, it it, it was too successful. Its success was its own demise. Jews were un, the un, so Jonathan. To your point, by the by the 1900s, Jews were unaffiliated because reform didn't it didn't have much substance. There's one other movement, and then we have to get to Rabbi Hirsch in just a second. There was another movement that was taking place at the same time that was a little different, and I love pronouncing it because I get to show off my brilliant German. <laughs> Let's see if I could say it by heart. The Verein von Kultur und Wissenschaft von Judentums. Thank you very much. That's Chinese for the Society for Culture. It's really the, it's known in, in, in Jewish history as the Wissenschaft von Judentums, the scientific discovery of Judaism. The Wissenschaft 
group, what they were interested in doing was not so much to reform. The reformers eventually, like by the 1840s, they abandoned Judaism the hala- in the sense that they were not observing halacha. The Wissenschaft Jews were still very, very religiously practicing the mitzvahs and the laws that they felt were convenient. The ones that were a little annoying they got rid of. But essentially they were practicing Jews. What they emphasized and focused on, which was fascinating, was the scientific study of Judaism. As one rabbi said, they wanted to give Judaism a proper burial. And what they did was is they studied Judaism scientifically. Probably a better word for us would be um, science, not like in a microbiology sense, but a historical study of Judaism. It was much more historical. What they would always say, the, the line that everyone says, is they were interested in, what the, in the clothing that Rashi wore. Right? Whereas the Orthodox and the traditional Jews are interested in the commentaries that Rashi wrote. Right? They were more interested in, you know, what were the life and times of Rashi? They were much more into that kind of pursuit. And it was a very scientific slash historical slash, and they were very, 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 very scholarly. So whereas the reform, the German reform movement would be considered the second cousin of the American reform movement, the Wissenschaft von Judentum's group would be considered often a second cousin of the American conservative movement. Conservative movement, not today. Conservative movement today is a very, very different, um, very different than it was even in the 1970s, which was drastically different than what it was in the 1920s, which was da- drastically different than what it was in 1887 when it, or 1889, whatever, whenever it started, you want to call it its, its birth. These were scholars, and many of the Wissenschaft folks would end up actually making their way to the United States. Most famous being, what's his name? What's that? No, see, he stayed, but uh, what's his name? The Solomon Schechter. Thank you. Solomon Schechter. He was kind of a Wissenschaft guy. He was a brilliant historian. Was he religiously scrupulous? Uh, not so much. I mean, you wouldn't be able to necessarily tell it, but if you knew him, he, he was not. And religiosity and Jewish observance crashed and burned. It's in this world that Samson Raphael Hirsch was born in Hamburg in 1808. His name was actually Shamshon Hirsch. Shamshon is a German pronunciation of the Hebrew word Shimshon. But he was called Samson Raphael. Samson, he was German. And he was called by his German name. People think, like some people are the more yeshivish crowd will say his name was Shimshon Raphael. I don't think he ever went by that. His name was Samson. Interestingly, his father's name was Raphael. But he took on that name. I think that was somewhat common back then. His, name, his father's name was Raphael, but he took on the name Samson Raphael Hirsch. He was born in 1808. He grew up, his grandfather was actually buddies, actually for those who like Rabbi Goldman, his father was a Talmud of, of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Very interesting. Uh, fascinating. But he also knew Mendelssohn and studied the beer. So he was Germanized in the sense that he was connected to that outside world. And young Samson grows up. He goes to the local gymnasia, I think, you know, the local public school, and was very well accultured. He ends up as he, but he was, they were strictly devoutly connected to their Judaism and halacha and orthodoxy. He learns under Chacham Yitzchak Bernays, who's a, uh, quite a remarkable figure, and he ends up getting his smichas, rabbinic under, uh, ordination, under... Uh, Yaakov Etlinger, Aruch Laner. 
for those who keep, are keeping, keeping track. Those were his ma- major um, teachers. He goes to the University of Bonn, doesn't get his doctorate. He doesn't get a degree. People would call him Dr. Hirsch, and he would not appreciate that. He wasn't a doctor. In, at the university, he actually became buddies with Abraham Geiger. They were con- contemporaries and became good friends. Uh, they would have, I don't know, falling out is a strong word. They would part ways in a very dramatic fashion, Geiger being one of the early pioneers of the reform. He becomes a rabbi at the age of 23 in the small town of Oldenburg. And he doesn't have a lot of um, communal responsibilities. He has time on his hands. He's a rabbi of a small synagogue. So what, do you, what are rabbis of small synagogues who have time on their hand? What do they do? You're right. And he wrote a book. I actually have a copy of it right here. He wrote a book called The 19 Letters. And it's a remarkable, The 19 Letters of Ben Uziel. He wrote it anonymously, but it wasn't so anonymous. He, quote, he, he says it's a fellow named Ben Uziel. And what it is, it's a dialogue written in a beautiful German. It's written in German. Rabbi Hirsch spoke a beautiful German. And what it was, it was a dialogue between, I think the other guy's name was Binyamin, if I recall, and Naftali or Binyamin, I don't remember. But it's a dialogue where you had this guy who's this 20-year-old kid, and it's all fictitious, but it, just, it was a literary device that was very, very, it was done very well. It was written as a dialogue, this, this kid, this 20-year-old, who's this German emancipated kid who doesn't see any value in Torah and halacha and religion, and he asks these 19 questions to Ben Uziel, and Ben Uziel responds to each one of them brilliantly. And the thrust of the arguments are, no, 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 Judaism, Torah is relevant even in an enlightened culture, in a sophisticated modern society. This isn't some, the Torah is no, it's not backwards, it's not out of date. It's not oriental, it's not foreign, but it's actually brilliantly relevant and modern. And he goes through explaining how Judaism, although it has demands in terms of the halacha, in terms of Jewish law and ritual and things like that, but these aren't just some weird old irrelevant traditions, but they are actually rich, beautiful, and have tremendous depth. This book sold like hotcakes. Thank you, John the hotcakes. <laughs> it was wildly popular. As a matter of fact, a fellow named Heinrich Gratz, who would end up being one of the greatest, if not used, the greatest, he was the first great Jewish historian, and he would end up being a, a Wissenschaft kind of guy. He got so enamored by this book, he moved in to Rabbi Hirsch's house and lived there for three years. And then they had a falling out because he, he wasn't really interested. It was wildly popular, and Rabbi Hirsch became very well-known. He followed it up with another book. I don't have a copy of it here, but you can... And by the way, these have been translated... This is interesting. This is translated, this is translated by Joseph Elias, who's a brilliant man, um, and with footnotes, this is a great... This is my edition, but you can get this anywhere. He wrote another book called Horeb, which was essentially a work... Similar goal, but it's organized on the 613 mitzvahs written in a beautiful German, it was contemporary, and it basically, what it did is it took the sails out of the reform, you know, out of the, you know, took the wind out of the sails of the reform boat. Whereas reform was saying, oh, the old Torah and Judaism, it's irrelevant, they're backwards, they don't even, they don't speak modern German. Rabbi Hirsch writes these works showing how beautiful, how alive Torah is, and he writes it in the contemporary terms. The beautiful, rich German. It was accessible, and it was just, 
Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who was the great, who was in, he was more in Eastern Europe. He was like, he said this is like the greatest book ever written. And he actually went on a campaign to get it translated. I think it was Rabbi Salanter got it translated into Russian, into other languages. And Horeb is the same thing, and it was wildly popular. Rabbi Hirsch moves on to become a rabbi in Emden, and then in, uh, in Nicholsburg in Moravia. Um, and from there, he, but reform in those areas were so dominant, he just never felt like he can really make an impact. And he moves in the year 18-something-something, I want to say in the 1850s, he moves to Frankfurt am Main. Frankfurt. In Frankfurt, the reform took, were in charge. They were the ones, again, there was a formal communal structure. The reform was in charge, and it wasn't just each shul, it was the community. So you couldn't even have an Orthodox synagogue. So Rabbi Hirsch, he forms a breakaway. Who has ever heard of a breakaway synagogue? Never heard of it. <laughs> he forms a breakaway synagogue, but it couldn't even be a synagogue. It was a society. Because officially it was illegal. You can't have a breakaway synagogue. The synagogue, after all, again, was a communal, almost a governmental position. And he would actually, I'm going to fast forward for a second. One of the things that he did was he petitioned the government to allow formally for breakaways. And it would be in the 1870s, and this was called, let me get you the exact term. It was called the Ostrite, where they were basically able to formally break away. It became a little bit controversial, even within orthodoxy, but, but he was successful, and he ended up forming his, his group and his synagogue. It started with maybe 50 families. They barely got a minion during the week. By his death, hundreds and hundreds of families. It was wildly popular. He spoke in German. He gave sermons. What he did was, as I mentioned, he took what the community needed, what society needed, what the Jews needed, the reform was such a powerful force by the time, you know, by this time. Going to old school traditional Judaism in, in a lot of its veneer wouldn't have worked. So he basically, he, as we started off talking about, a lot of those innovations that the reform wanted to institu- institutionalize, some of them are fine. Some of them were against halacha. The problem with all of reform is they were doing it for the wrong reasons. They were doing it, as we said, to destroy Judaism. What Rabbi Hirsch does is he, first of all, draws clear lines in halacha. He does it, and he stood up for Torah law, and he wouldn't budge. He wouldn't. He, 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 every iota of Jewish law he kept and wouldn't budge an inch. He believed in the divinity of the Torah, and that's it. The Shulchan Aruch and the Code of Jewish Law and traditional Judaism. He was a firebrand in that sense. He was, it, he, he was actually... It, as we'll see in a moment, people would think he was more of a liberal. He was not. He was very particular about observance. Like, fanatically so. Uh, fanatic is a strong word. But devoutly so. However, he took a lot of those reform innovations and he did two things with it. He figured out which ones were kosher, don't violate Jewish law, and he gave it a, an element of positivity. I'm not trying to get accepted by my Christian next-door neighbor. That was not his goal. He could care less. He wanted to separate from them. What he wanted to do, this is already the second or third generation of Jews who had already seen the reform and had left Judaism in droves. He wanted to now appeal to them by speaking in German, sermons. They're used to rabbis in long coats. He wore a long coat. Choirs. So I mentioned, can you have a choir in an Orthodox, according to Orthodox traditional halacha? Can you have a choir? Yes and no. It depends where in the liturgy. They had a choir. And he was wildly successful. But he didn't just do that. 
He really built the infrastructure of the community. Education. He had day schools. He built an elementary school, a high school. In the late 1800s, women didn't get educated. He started schools for women. He didn't forget the women. He had the, the schools. There were school base, yeah, There were schools for, for girls. As a matter of fact, we were, someone was just mentioning one of the, our, our guest rabbis recently was mentioned. The, in my, it's a very cool thing. Who is the most impactful Jew in the 20th century? Right? It probably was someone who never made. We got to do a class on her. Sarah Schneerer. Who was Sarah Schneerer? Not for today. Sarah Schneerer is basically the pioneer of women's education within the Orthodox world. For that matter, for all the women weren't educated. She started the Beis Yaakov movement, women's education. Sarah Schneerer got inspired because she heard, it's so cool, she heard a lecture by someone who I forget who, who was a student of Rabbi Hirsch. And she was blown away. And she's like, we need this throughout all of Europe. And she was wildly successful in the, in, in the, in the 1900s. So he built schools. He um, he publishes more. It's while he's there, he actually writes yet another book. It's called the Hirsch Chumash. It's a commentary on the Chumash. This is one of the volumes. It's a six volume. It's been translated into English. He wrote it again in a beautiful German. It's unbelievable. Here you have a rabbi. He's writing in the 18-whatever, 70s. People study. We got This is the Kolos copy. Rabbi Davidowitz teaches from this almost every day. It is a remarkable work. If you've ever studied the Hirsch Chumash. It is, it's unbelievable. If you're going to get, I always say, you're going to get a copy, cop, every, every Jew, get yourself a copy of the Stone Chumash. I always talk about the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. If you're looking to take something to a little bit the next level, it's an investment because it probably costs about 200 bucks, bucks or so, get this. It's, it's, it's a much more in-depth book. You're not going to be able to, again, this is like one of like six or seven volumes. It's unbelievable. Very accessible. It's scholarly, and it's, it's absolutely remarkable, and it became wildly popular. Rabbi Hirsch dies in 1888. What was his legacy? If not for nothing, one of the ways of like really being able to, t- to, to tell how influential someone was is if someone makes, a lot of times people, historical figures, they come, make a loud you know, scene, make a lot, of, a lot, big hoopla, and then they move on, they die, and their legacy goes away. Rabbi Hirsch's community continued after his death. His son-in-law took over and it existed till the destruction of German Jewry in, the, in 1938. But it flourished for another, you know, 70, you know, whatever, 60, 70 years after his death. And then after the destruction or after Kristallnacht and everything was shut down, Rabbi Breuer, his grandson, he went ahead and he rebuilt Rabbi Hirsch's community in where? Washington Heights. Who's from New York? The Yekka community. Washington Heights. Broyers. Still alive. Still there today. It's a little hard because real estate, it's not so conducive. My in-laws grew up there in Broyers, davening that German community. It's, it's a, a hundred years later. It still exists. You talk about Yekki Jews. They are all part of Rabbi Hirsch's beautiful influence. Anyone who has a synagogue, like a movement that can exist you know, a century and a half later, a continent away, that's remarkable. Survived generationally. What of Rabbi Hirsch's philosophy, his philosophy of life took on a term. It was called Torah im Derecheretz. You may have heard of it. It was called Torah im Derecheretz. Literally means Torah with the ways of the world. It's been misconstrued and misunderstood vastly. Roughly speaking, here's what Torah, my, my understanding of Torah im Derecheretz. 
It's actually Rabbi, one of his, his I think it's his great-grandson, who is kind of the leader of the, of the, it was called, the, the name of the community in Washington Heights in, in, in uh, Manhattan. It's just called Breuer's after Rabbi Joseph Breuer, who was Rabbi Hirsch's grandson, who, who founded it after the war. So after Rabbi Breuer, after his death, so the leader of that community for many decades was an absolute giant, I mean absolute giant of American Jewry, Rabbi Shimon Schwab. Who, I mean, you read some of his stuff, I mean, just an absolute giant. He, I, he used to go to a summer camp that I went to. He died the year before I went. It was so, I never met him, but he, was, he died. So I'm going to say that was in 1994, 95 is when he died. But he wrote many of these, just a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And, and so he wrote, this is what, the way he explained it, I think. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm probably a misunderstanding, but this is my understanding. You had the old Eastern European, you know, Torah, 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 and no, no secularism, secular Jewry, is, I'm sorry, secular knowledge in, gener- in general, secularism is a definitive bad. Stay away from it. Just study Torah and that's it. Those were like the real, real hardcore, let's call that to the right. You have to, within orthodoxy. To the left, within orthodoxy, I'm not talking about reform and conservative, within orthodoxy, but to the left, you would have groups like today in, in the Yeshiva University crowd. This is what's called modern orthodox with a capital M and a capital O. They have something called Torah Umada, which roughly speaking is that secularism and secular knowledge is a positive good that should be positively instituted and everyone should go to university and college. Your rabbis should all go get university degrees and PhDs. It's a positive good with inside of Jewish life for everyone. My understanding, this is my, kind of my terms, is this is what Rabbi Hirsch, he had this thing called Torah Derech Haaretz, where he was okay with secular knowledge. Rabbi Schwab first thought, he writes, that the way people on the cause of Rabbi Hirsch was theologically very far to the right. So yet he was comfortable with a certain element of secularism. So he initially thought, says Rabbi Schwab, that Rabbi Hirsch's idea was, it's called the Haras Shah. Germany in the 1850s was falling apart. So he had to make an exception, but it wasn't really a philosophy that would stand generationally. That's what Rabbi Schwab said he initially thought. But he would go on, he said he researched it a lot more and he realized, no. Rabbi Hirsch felt this was, a, this was a proactive philosophy that should stand generationally for all time. The way I would say it is whereas the hardcore right would say secularism is a, is a negative bad and the far left would say secularism is a positive good, you know what Rabbi Hirsch would say? It's neutral. Neither good nor bad. Be careful with it. You want to go ahead and study secular knowledge so that you can become a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, and you can be successful in life because you're not going to be a rabbi, it's fine. It's neutral. It's, it's fine. It's not good. It's not bad. It's reality. But be careful because if you go too far that direction, you could end up falling off the ship and abandoning Judaism, which was the story of reform, reform Jewry. Who was right? I think my theory is the Torah and Derech Eretz philosophy is far more accepted, even within the religious right, than most people acknowledge. He wasn't really saying a philosophy, he was saying a tactic. His idea was tactical. Not everyone is going to be a hardcore, you know, 
guy studying Torah 24 hours a day till, the day till they're 120 years old. People need to live life. So what are you going to do? You can just be ignorant and, be po- and you know, not really be a part of society, or you can figure out a way of maintaining a very delicate balance of being successful in whatever profession you are, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, but be deeply committed to your Judaism. I believe that was what Rabbi Hirsch's philosophy was. His writings, as we mentioned, live on till today. Widely studied. And I think probably his biggest legacy, and we'll end here, a minute early, his biggest legacy was that he was, I, as I mentioned when I started, I really think he was the first rabbi to really bring Judaism into modern times. By modern times, I mean secularism, the fact that you know we have science, we have Jews, thank God, in the United States of America, we are emancipated. You know, we're not cloister Jews living in the old shtetl of, of Eastern Europe where Jews were downtrodden, and I don't care about emancipation. You were a second-class citizen in name, in deed, in everything. But how do Jews who exist, in, we live in unusual times, where your next-door neighbor, I don't know if he's an anti-Semite or not, but I can tell you one thing. In the United States of America, there is no institutionalized anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. I hear that all the time. It's true. There's no institutionalized anti-Semitism. We live in a very, very unique time in Jewish history. You want to go ahead and become a physicist and work in the highest echelons of the Department of Defense, like my dad of blessed memory, with a big fat yarmulke on your head? No problem. You want to become a world-class violinist? No problem. You want to become a great... Who can I pick on? Whatever. Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. No one's going to say boo in America. I mean, okay, you might get, you know, some anti-Semites here and there, but no one's going to, you don't have to take any Jew tests or anything like that. You can, you can assimilate if you want. You want to say, guys, Judaism, not for me anymore. Thank you very much. I'm out. Go for it. No one cares. How are you going to be able to maintain your Judaism in a society and culture that accepts you do whatever you want. Hakuna Matata. It's all good. That, in a sense, I believe was Rabbi Hirsch's greatest legacy. And I really do believe deeply it, it, served, it lives with us till today. The fact that you can have a vibrant Jewish life in the United States of America or you have Jews who can go ahead and be you know, very well integrated professionally in society yet come to Minyan three times a day and say, and daven with the Minyan and learn the Dafyomi and come to the classes and do all their Jewish things and go ahead and, you know, I gotta, oh wait, I gotta get to work and be successful and well-regarded and well-respected. How are you able, it's like we almost to a certain extent can take that for granted. Many people don't and many, many people are not able to maintain that duality and that balance. That I believe was Rabbi Hirsch's greatest legacy and you know as we started is rabbi hirsch some long forgotten dead german rabbi you could say that i think his impact is very very much alive today thank you for listening to this edition of the jewish history podcast as always we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better leave a comment for more information please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org